Cambridge Ideas, transforming tomorrow. Hello, I'm Yasser Suleiman, and you're listening to the 2009 Cambridge Festival of Ideas. In this talk, we ask, can there be peace in the Middle East? What is the future of Iran after the June elections? Should the region be changing to confront the problems of the 21st century? On the panel are two Middle East experts. Professor Anoush Ihtishami is Professor of International Relations and Head of the School of Government and International Affairs at Durham University. His many publications include the 2007 book, Iran on the Rise of its Neoconservatives. Dr. Glenn Rangwala lectures international politics at Cambridge, specializing in the politics of the Arab-Israeli conflict and the Gulf region. His most recent book is Iraq in Fragments, The Occupation and Its Legacy, widely cited by policymakers and commentators on the Iraq war. So let's go inside the Middle Lane Lecture Room here in Cambridge and hear our first speaker, Professor Anoush Ehtishami. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Let me try and set uh, the, the strategic stage in terms of what I regard the Middle East predicament. That is to say, what are the drivers of Middle East dynamics? The first one is violence. If you look the last couple of days, bombing Baghdad yesterday, riots around the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem day before, uh, another bomb in Pakistan day before that in Islamabad, another one in Kabul, literally on the same day. Violence is an integral part of Middle East politics. And while from the outside we only look at its, its immediate effects, it leaves a longer, longer term impact um, and residue on the region itself. It shapes people's perceptions, it shapes the decision makers' outlook, and it affects the security and politics of the region. That is the first predicament. The second is that this is a region which is highly penetrated by outside actors. This is IR. Uh, IR, if you like, language. It is a region which is exposed to international forces. We all depend on its oil, for instance. Uh, the, its religion is global, um, and, and when it is violent, the rest of us actually feel it. Al-Ghaida is, is, is Middle East grown, but has a global, global reach. But it's the reverse of it is also true. That external penetration also means that the, the region is actually highly penetrated by the United States as the global actor. And the US policies, good or bad, let's not be judgmental about it, has a direct impact on, on the region. This is the second predicament. The third, though I've already touched on this, is the impact of disruptive non-state actors. Unlike, well, well, well dissimilar compared with other parts of the world, non-state actors seem to have a very important, but also largely perilous role, role to play in this region. Al-Ghaida is an example of this, but Hezbollah in Lebanon is another one. Hezbollah is a legitimate homegrown organization in Lebanon, but it has an extraterritorial dimension to what it does, and its actions affect Israel, Iran, Syria, Saudi Arabia, United States, France, Britain, one can go on. Uh, Hamas, a legitimate Palestinian organization, um, its roots are in Islamic ideology, but it enjoys popular support, at least, let's say, in Gaza. And yet, when Hamas takes on Israel, as it did uh, in December 2008 and early 2009, the ripples of that went beyond the borders of Palestine and Israel, affecting so many other actors. 
This is the third predicament. So to just recap, violence, external penetration, and these disruptive non-state actors are crucial in, in the way that the region functions. They determine its dynamism. Now let's look at a country like Iran, a, a, a key actor regionally with aspirations to become a global player, given its size, its demography, uh, its natural resources, uh, and geopolitics, its location amongst many other reasons, ideology being another one. It's a country which, which, which the West takes seriously, the East takes seriously, and the region has to, to reckon with it. Iran has just had its 30th um, anniversary of its revolution. And yet, if you look back, the revolution, 79 revolution, uh, like many others before it, was an essentially domestic affair. But my argument is that it was actually highly disruptive internationally as well. But regionally, it totally disrupted the balance of power as existed before the revolution. And having done so, 30 years on, the region still hasn't found a natural balance, a natural order of life uh, after uh, the revolution. The revolution also gave birth to what is in many ways a unique model and, and set of state structures. You have a cleric, I'm sure you've seen him on television, Atullah Khamenei, as the leader not of the state, but of the revolution. And yet the country has a president, it has a functioning parliament, it has all the trappings of the state as we in the West would recognize as, as normal features of government and also government machinery. And yet it is unique because it's based on the late revolutionary leader, Atullah Khomeini's conception of what an Islamic state should look like. His ideas are rooted in Shia, uh, sect of Islam, different from Sunnism, and he, in a sense, politicized the much, much earlier age of, of Islam in order to build this new state. But 30 years on, what's Iran's place in the world? As what? Is it a revisionist state? Is it a status quo state? Is it an irredentist state? I don't think Iran knows, but more worrying, nor does the rest of the world, as far as how to treat Iran. This background is important as I wind forward and, and look briefly at the 10th presidential elections which took place in June uh, of this year. I'm sure everyone in this room, if you didn't, you wouldn't be here, was following it with great interest and it became the hour of the blog, of Facebook, of, of the internet. This is a youth which is, which is, whose life is regulated by, by a set of clerics whose values are 1300 years old and yet there's new generation was so completely uncomf comfortable with new technology that amazed everybody in the West and certainly amazed Iran's own leaders in terms of the savviness and their ability to find other ways of communication when the state began to censor uh, means of communication. The elections were important for a number of reasons. The first one is that we already had the new conservative president Ahmadinejad in power since 2005 and I think we were all getting rather fed up with him. Good reasons for that, I would say. The nuclear uh, discussions were not going very far. He was being very dogmatic on those. He was praising Iran's role on the regional stage. Uh, who can forget his, his wish to wipe Israel off the map? Uh, his anti-Zionism uh, rhetoric was, was very, very profound and different from even Iranian standards. He was highly uncompromising, nothing to do with America, shifting Iran eastwards towards China and India, and at the same time, developing links with places that Iran really had very little links with prior 
to his election victory in 2005, Latin America. Hugo Chavez, for instance, and Ahmadinejad apparently get on like a house on fire. Um, and, and he's got pretty good links across the, the left-leaning Latin American countries. But also, more importantly for him, relations with Russia and China are central to the prolonging of the life of the current, if you like, makeup of the regime. But at the same time, though, there were alternatives on offer. There were four candidates standing in the June election, selected from many hundreds who had volunteered to stand in the elections in Iran's own bizarre system of selecting the electorate, if you like, um, in that context. The alternatives were interesting. We had, who is now cast himself in the role of opposition, Mir Hussein Mousavi, uh, again, carrying the, the very green environmentalist sound, but also the color of the Shia uh, Islamist green color. And he offered, before the elections, but more importantly, since the election, the real alternative. And alternative is a compromise. Iran at, at peace with the world, at ease with itself, and much more of an outward-looking country to what it had. The other two candidates were also preaching a message of change, of modernity, of compromise, and so on. Ahmadinejad, until that point, 2008 certainly, was riding the wave of high oil prices. In July 2008, I was in Washington, and Americans were reeling from the pressures of $150 a barrel. At that time, Ahmadinejad appeared on a local television, uh, being interviewed by American Network, where he was saying, uh, lamenting America for its dependence on the oil and so on. Three months later, literally, three months later, price of oil was was slashed to about 60, and it got even lower than that by the end of the year. Ahmadinejad had been banking this very high uh, oil price, $150 a barrel. During his presidency, he accumulated more petrodollars than the entire period since the revolution. That's a very important element to bear in mind, in that when I said that he was actually riding the wave of the high oil prices, he was very cash rich and was able to use that as, as political largesse. But that doesn't mean that Iran didn't have problems on the eve of the elections. There were economic problems, social problems, and political problems. But given that, that we've got time issues, with your permission, Mr. Chairman, I won't go into details and wait for those to come um, in many, probably in question and answer. The regional environment that gave birth to Ahmadinejad's presidency in 2005 was, of course, dominated by the Bush doctrine of the 2001-2008. Bush himself was, of course, a victim of 9-11, but that doesn't mean that he didn't have an agenda for the region. The neocons and American neocons in this instance did have an agenda for the region. And 9-11 merely provided the means, if you like, to, 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 to that grim end. His was a war on terror, but also as he unleashed this, the, the, the American military might, the region was securitized further. The region, as I said at the beginning, is, is the clock of it, if you like, is regulated. One of, one of its, its, its arms is violence. The Bush doctrine brought that very much to the forefront of, 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 of the region. Uh, Secretarization of the region, which was part and parcel of the war on terror, was important. For Bush, there were three deadly sins that, 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 that actually drove his, his regional policy. Counterterrorism, countering weapons of mass destruction, proliferation, and anybody who is anti-US and also anti-Israel. Park those thoughts, because towards the end of my presentation, I'll be revisiting them uh, in, a, in a different context. So post 
we have the, the, the dogma, the doctrine, if you like, of regime change. First in, in Afghanistan, before the end of 2001, but more significantly in geopolitical terms, the overthrow of the Ba'ath government in Iraq in March, April 2003. Regime change in these two countries served two other countries in the region over and above anybody else, Iran and Israel. And again, it's not surprising that it's Iran and Israel which are riding the region in terms of, in terms of their, their regional policies. It is Iran resurgent because Bush's uh, regime change strategy and also this unleashing of American presence. If that was until 2008, the re-election, the election of, of June 2009 was taking, in Iran was taking place in a very different environment, strategic environment, because by then we had President Obama uh, in place who, who, who danced differently, who spoke differently, and his message was also very different to Bush's. Obama has an effort to change U.S.'s relations with the region at the forefront. Go and read his Cairo speech if you don't believe me. I've got a passage here if you want it immediately addressed uh, as well in, in Q&A. Secondly, they've made Americans under, under Obama in this recent time have made every effort to change the dynamics of power in the region in ways that Bush simply could not uh, get beyond, if you like, the, the, the metrics of 9-11. Thirdly, when he came to Iran, he extended a hand of friendship but made it very clear and has pursued this policy of a carrot and stick strategy as far as Iran is concerned. But to make that work, he's been very busy rebuilding America's international partnerships that Bush had let lapse. For instance, not alliances note, I'm talking about partnerships, working more closely with Russia, for instance, <coughs> developing a rapport with China, as another example, but also making sure that Germany and France are with America and not just Britain, as was the case during the Bush years. So this is the environment in which Iranians when, went to vote for their 10th uh, in, in the 10th presidential elections for the 12th president. Iran post-election, however, on the 13th of June 2009, was a very different to what it was on the 11th, 11th of June 2009. Because the election outcome was contested, because I would argue there's been industrial-scale fraud in the elections, there is a very serious crisis of legitimacy as far as the, 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 the president, his government, but also the leader is concerned. Furthermore, as a consequence of the outcome of the elections, we've had the further secularization of Iranian politics, in which the Revolutionary Guards, these are uh, card-carrying members of, of Iran's own unique brand of militarized Hezbollah, uh, very much not just running the security establishment, but increasingly present in government, in ministries, and even they have members uh, in, in, in parliament uh, as well. Thirdly, Iran's economic difficulties have not gone away. Unemployment is high, inflation is, is high, the oil price is far, far too low for the ambitions of its populist uh, president. And more, more fundamentally and more recently, there are now deep cleavages emerging between state and society in ways that we saw from June 13th onwards, but also, even more importantly, between state and religion, between Qom as the heart of Iranian religion and the state sitting in Tehran between the politicized religious leadership like Ayatollah Khamenei and the religious leadership sitting in Rome. These cleavages are growing by day by day. These are not going to go away anytime soon. So in terms of a couple of very quick conclusions, you and I are both looking at your watch, very nice watch as well, uh, are, are, are the following. What happens in Iran, in my, in my view, given what I've said, matters. Why? 
because it has extensive networks across the region, because it can reach to the heart of the, of the Arab world in the Levant, it has a voice now in the Arab-Israeli conflict, it has extensive relations with the non-state actors of which I spoke uh, earlier, it has a role, it has weight to throw around, and because of, or rather in the absence of a stronger Arab presence in front of Iran, it is able to project that power much further. 30 years on, however, from its revolution, Iran itself doesn't know where it's going. And that is where I think the problem lies. And that is why I'm not convinced that even with electoral politics in Iran, we are anywhere nearer peace in our time in the Middle East. Because until and unless Iran gets its place right in the region, until and unless it's comfortable with itself at home, it is likely to continue to be irredentist, revisionist, while also seeking a status quo, which is fool's gold. Thank you very much. You're listening to the 2009 Cambridge Festival of Ideas. We're discussing whether there can be peace in the Middle East. Next to speak is Dr. Glenn Rangwala. Uh, thank you very much, Anoush, for, for, for a very interesting talk indeed, and thank you, Chairman. My brief from the chair is to be sharp and provocative and original. Um, unfortunately, the news that comes out of the Middle East on a regular basis has a weary familiarity to it. Um, the bombings yesterday in Baghdad, which killed 155 by today's count, at the rush hour in the morning, um, echoing the bombing in August, which killed 101, echoing so many tragic disasters in that country over the past six years. The demonstrations at the Haram al-Sharif, um, the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, housing al-Aqsa, um, um, which the Israeli police stormed yesterday, um, arresting the Palestinian official who had, or at least asserted, responsibility for Jerusalem affairs, echoing again the protests of September 2000, which began with Ariel Sharon visiting the Temple Mount and led to demonstrations, demonstrations and repressions that in turn led to the outbreak of the Second Intifada, all feels like very old news that keeps coming back every day into our headlines. These could have been the headlines for, in the Israel-Palestine case at least, 42 years ago. In the Iraq case, it could have been the same headlines for the last six years, and we wouldn't notice the difference. There is, in the Middle East, generally, um, a sense of regional stagnation, which is what I'm going to be addressing through my, through my talk um, today. Um, Arab political leaders have said to have high yippee content. That sounds all very uh, nice, yippee content. It stands for, of course, years in power per, per incumbent. Um, um, the identity of political rulers in the Middle East has been fairly constant for the past 20 years. We've had recently the 40th anniversary of Gaddafi in Libya, 20 years of Omar Bashir in Sudan. Out of the 17 historic Arab states, every ruler um, is either the same or the, or the brother of or the son of the person who was in power 20 years ago, with three exceptions, Lebanon, Algeria, Iraq, three cases which have all been beset by a serious war in the past, in, over that time period. In Egypt, in over 3,000 years of recorded history, Mubarak has, uh, President Mubarak has held power longer 
than anybody since Ramesses II. <laughs> 12, 13 BC, um, at the same time as Moses. Um, just today, Zin Alabadin Ben Ali in Tunisia won 90% of the vote, winning 90% of the presidential vote because there was no real choice for the electors. So we have, we have a region which looks like it's, it's stagnating. We have a region in which the politics looks like it's unchanging over the space of this time. And the reasons for that are familiar um, to all of us, I think. The economic power of the state over people's lives, that comes from the sources, or often source in the singular, of its wealth. The social fracturing, that's led to opposition movements being divided in much of the Arab Middle East. Um, the powerful military and, and internal security apparatus, that's the legacy of a certain form of state formation. Uh, earlier, in the early part of the 20th century. These are all, I guess, familiar reasons to all of us, and I, I don't want to go into them in more detail here, but I'm happy to discuss, discuss them later. Against that background of perceived stagnation, there are arguments about change, and that's what I'm going to be addressing for the next 20 minutes or so. Arguments that really to, we're looking in the wrong place when we look to whether rulers are changing or not, when we look to Who's, who's up or who's down at the high politics of the country. And that really we should be looking elsewhere when we're trying to understand how the Middle East is changing. All eight of the monarchies of um, the Arab Middle East have had significant political liberalisation over the last few years. Significant may be too strong a term to use in cases like Saudi Arabia, but there is still openings there in many of these countries. There's been the rise of the blog, the rise of the internet, the rise especially of satellite television. And just as a frequent visitor to the region over the past 20 years, there is the sense of the vocal political debate um, coming back to that region, whereby people are happy to express their opinions to you in no uncertain terms, not looking over their shoulder for the secret police, even though they know the secret police might be there. And moreover people are able to disagree from their neighbours, from their friends, from their family members, in a way that I think is actually quite different from how it was a few years ago. The limits to liberalisation are very apparent. There are no real parties in most of the... no, no political parties in most, many, of the Arab, many of the Arab Middle Eastern states. The parliaments are often toothless. They're often called consultative bodies rather than legislatures. Um, but that legacy of popular participation is still a significant one. On the other side, and perhaps just as consequential, there are arguments about how the political elites in the Arab world at least are much less cohesive than they used to be. That elites um, are somewhere in some, in some cases separating out into different branches of family, different sets of um, institutionals, concerns, the military versus the uh, political leadership, the religious versus the, the, the politicised religious leadership, um, and that in some sense this, this, this breakup of, of traditional elites leads to a process through which um, contestation occurs, which leads in turn to some sort of democratisation or opening up of the political process. The state, of course, is often able to play divide and rule with the population. 
between different social groups or between Islamists and liberals is often the case, and Egypt is probably the most clear example of that. So those are very visible trends in much of, in much of the region. But we shouldn't mistake it for something either that is either decisive or something that is new. Much was said about the protests on the streets of Kuwait, um, about the, arguing for cleaner means of representation back in 2006, proclaimed by some, including the then uh, administration in the US, as a portent for a new era in the Middle East. People were coming out on the streets to protest, arguing for greater representation or cleaner means of, of political of, of, of voting. But that demonstrates a bit of a limited historical knowledge. We shouldn't forget that the, the Majlis movement in Kuwait in 1938 led to pressure, which led to the Al-Sabah family founding a popular assembly for the first time. The Middle East has an extensive legacy of popular politics, from the railway workers in Egypt to the oil workers in Iraq, from the early part of the last century. And those histories remain very much alive in popular discourse and have done ever since the early part of the 20th century. So if change isn't something that has been brought anew by the internet, by satellite television, and I, don't, I think it would be overly optimistic to say it was, then what are the sources of change in the region? And here, it's, here is where I'm trying to make my controversial argument. What has changed, I think, most significantly, is the, it, most directly, is the nature of international relationships. Hitherto, we have this legacy of external penetration that, that Anoush referred to in, in his presentation. US administrations, for example, have periodically focused their foreign policy um, on the Middle East, the Eisenhower Doctrine, the, Nas the Nixon Doctrine, the Carter Doctrine, all centred on the Middle East, portraying their own governments as agents for transformation of the Middle East. George Bush was the most explicit in basing his national security strategy in 2002 upon transforming the Middle East. Obama in Cairo is the latest of many examples there. They all make the presumption that an external agent the US, can be an important agent in transforming a malleable object, the Middle East. It assumes that the power holder, the key power holder, stand out, stand, stands outside the region. And that may have been historically true to some extent. It's shown most overtly, I suppose, in the economic realm, where key um, assets in Middle Eastern states were owned or managed by foreign companies or states. But now we do have a changed balance of power between Middle Eastern states and the West, the US and UK. It's shown most overtly in the way in which many Western countries have become, if not reliant, at least take highly significantly Middle Eastern money in bailing out their major companies in the, recent in the current financial crisis. Abu Dhabi and Qatari investment funds propped up Barclays Bank in buying up institutions like football clubs and even helping bail out university departments. The US relies on other countries to finance its balance of payments deficit, and it can't secure that through stationing its military forces abroad. So my, my basic argument here is at least that relationships that for a long time have been hierarchical, with the West being the power holder over the Middle East, are gradually, but I think clearly, becoming more horizontal. 
That's been shown by the Iraq case. Um, it was demonstrated that the US couldn't impose its way in Iraq in the way that it wanted to after 2003. It could overthrow the Ba'ath, but it couldn't impose its vision of where it wanted the country to go. It was shown by the Status of Forces Agreement last year, when Iraqi politicians managed to wring some quite substantial concessions after the Bush administration in its final days. It's been shown with Israel recently, it's been able to withstand fairly significant pressure from the Obama administration through the Mitchell, George Mitchell's diplomacy, it's been able to withstand that without serious economic or domestic political consequences in a way that wouldn't have been the case maybe 15 years ago or so. It's even been shown in the slightly more unusual case of Libya, the, the August release of Abdul Basit al-Magrahi prompted a sense of disquiet in much of the UK that it was motivated by economic interests, um, that it was motivated by the British government cozying up to foreign powers. And I don't want to judge whether that's true or not. I don't know enough to know whether it's true or not. Um, but at least that sort of thing, making decisions internally in ways to at least accommodate foreign powers, has been the way of life of much of the rest of the world over the past hundred and more years. That's not to say that these are comfortable truths. The accommodations we make to, config to configurations of power are especially uncomfortable after extended periods in which one could at least purportedly, uh, purport plausibly to be standing above those considerations. My basic argument then, and I hope this does fulfil the, the, the mandate of being controversial, is we may not like what we see in the Middle East. We may not be able to transform the Middle East in the ways that we would like, in ways that we would like for beneficial reasons for the region as well as for us. But it's becoming increasingly unrealistic to expect external actors to take the leading role in transforming it. So that's where I'm going to stop. Thank you.